This morning we'll be back in Matthew for our sermon. Chapter 27, verses 15 through 31. Matthew 27, verses 15 through 31. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. This is one of those central themes in all of Scripture, isn't it? The death of Jesus Christ. If you haven't spent a lot of time studying the death of Jesus, then this passage gives us a lot of information about who our Savior is and what he experienced in his suffering and in his death. If you read the rest of the New Testament, this, this event shadows all other events in the New Testament documents. It's the basis by which we measure our forgiveness of others. It is the call and the blueprint for how a husband is to love his wife. It is the pattern for how we are to suffer and to trust the Lord with quiet, non-retaliatory responses. Jesus Christ's suffering and death is the towering event of the New Testament account of Christ. His resurrection comes in very brief glimpses in the gospel accounts, but his death, uh, in Matthew at least, covers two chapters of suffering in the garden leading to his death in chapter 27. As we look at this, what I would like to do this morning is, is outline it for you in about three different, maybe you can say, events. And the first is dealing with his suffering for, for his spiritual position. The second is suffering because of his political position. And the last is suffering at the hands of everyone around him. So I want to look at those three uh, kind of elements of suffering that Matthew gives us in this text. But I want to take you back to chapter 26. That's where we'll see it. So let's just start with the basis that we recognize what the New Testament claims to be true. Jesus is innocent. And he suffers as an innocent man. Now, I, I can't imagine that any of us find suffering as an innocent person an easy thing. I know it's not easy because my kids, that is one of the things that causes them the most grief in the home, is when they get accused by a sibling of doing something they didn't do. They don't care about justice too many times, but in that moment, all of a sudden, they care about justice. I didn't do it. They're lying. They're exaggerating. It's not like that. 
We don't like suffering when we shouldn't suffer. Oftentimes, we don't like suffering at all, but especially when we feel like we don't deserve it. Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. If you were to read through the book of Matthew, multiple times he said, I am going to go to Jerusalem to suffer. This is why I'm going there. In fact, in John, he prays, should I pray that this hour passes from me? He goes, no, for this very reason I came. So then you look back in chapter 26 and verse 59, he's called in front of the chief priest. Let me read this whole entire section. But you'll notice right in the middle of this section, the chief priests are gathering together witnesses. Notice how Matthew describes those witnesses. Verse 57, then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. See how Matthew slides that in there? The chief priests get Jesus. Uh, Caiaphas, Annas, uh, father-in-law, son-in-law uh, are kind of the power brokers in the religious realm. And they're gathering at Caiaphas' house. They're going to prosecute Jesus. It's probably something like 2 a.m. in the morning, which is technically a violation of the law. This is why you'll see in chapter 27.1 that they gather together in, at dawn to announce the sentence that was not legitimate that they did in the middle of the night. Court was only to happen in the broad light of day so that everything would be honest. Matthew records for us, if you look again in the text, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking what type of testimony? Seeking false testimony. Matthew continues the account in verse 60, they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward at last, who came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now we know that Jesus was referring to his physical body as, as the temple, not the physical building that they were worshiping. So they, they accuse him. Verse 62, the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? The Sanhedrin answered, He deserves death. And they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, prophesy to, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Come down to chapter 27. Then you see Judas Iscariot. And, and after his sorrow over his betrayal of Jesus, he goes back. Verse 3, Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned. He changed his mind and brought back 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. I betrayed innocent blood, he says. Come down with me to verse 18. Pilate, working through the prosecution of Jesus, trying to figure out a way to, to manage a situation. Now, Pilate is known as a couple things. 
a relatively weak man who will be deposed in about three or so years after the death of Christ, and a violent Jew-hating man. And so when we read this account, he seems like a sympathetic, just man. It's probably because he really just doesn't want to do what the Jews are trying to get him to do. It's probably not really about justice. It's the fact that he's a weak ruler who's a little bit petty and hard, and he doesn't like the Jews that he's leading. In fact, he's murdered many of them and does so again after this. Okay, so, so you look at the text here. It says that, that Pilate recognizes, verse 18, it was out of what that they wanted to deliver Jesus to death. It's not because they're justice seekers. I mean, here's the spiritual leaders of Israel who represent God to the world. They stand in the temple, somewhat in the position of God, to speak God's word to the people, <coughs> excuse me, and to represent the people before God. They are, they are in a place of, of holiness, right? Like, they won't even go into the temple, or the, excuse me, the house of the Gentiles. As they're prosecuting Jesus, they stand in the courtyard because to go under a Gentile roof is to make them dirty on a sacred day. So they're very worried about, about the externals. And they come before Pilate and they say, kill Jesus. And Pilate sees right through them and says, you're doing this because of, you're envious of Jesus. Matthew is reminding us that Jesus, although he dies as a man guilty of capital crimes, he's innocent of any crime, isn't he? Come down the very next line. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with, how does Pilate's wife describe Jesus? He's a righteous man. Further down, as Pilate's interacting with the Jewish people, he's trying to release Jesus and to execute Barabbas. Verse 23, what evil has he done? They shouted, all the more, let him be crucified. They don't have an answer because there is none. Pilate takes water, washes his hand, and says, I am innocent of this man's blood. It would have been murder for Pilate to kill him. He knows it, so he cleans his hands. Look at the confession of the people. Verse 25, the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. We go through the trial of Jesus, and Matthew doesn't just drop in front of us, Jesus was hurting and suffering and persecuted and dying on the cross. It's that Jesus died as an innocent lamb. He was innocent. The people who were accusing him were filled with envy. They are, they, are, they are performing an illegal trial. Pilate executes Jesus out of pure cowardice. It's unjust. He's a righteous man. Even in a dream, Pilate's wife acknowledges he's a righteous man. Now, Matthew makes sure we don't miss it. So let me just give you a little bit of a framework in terms of timeline for this text. Jesus probably gets arrested somewhere during the... Um, early to late night, so let's say midnight to 2 a.m. He gets taken into the kind of the religious trial elements during the dark hours of the night. So from that, from that arrest in the garden until about dawn, we have him back and forth in a trial with, with the Sanhedrin trying to work through how to get him killed. The religious leaders do not have the right to capital punishment. So when you come to chapter 27, verse 1, if you turn there with me, 
It says, when morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. That's, they've already decided to kill him. This is now the official legal announcement that's going to lead them to take Jesus in front of the Roman leaders. So they bound him, verse 2, led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Okay, so that, that's the, the official ending of the the whole night of trial that's all about the religious leaders and the Jewish um, authorities trying to do everything they can to get him killed. They don't have the right of capital punishment, so then they, they haul him over to Pilate, and Jesus will spend about the next six hours in Roman trials, more civil court. Right? So, so all night, spiritual court, morning hours, civil court, Death around, or excuse me, the, the beginning of the crucifixion around noon with death around 6 p.m. That's a, just a rough framework. If you're trying to follow the, the, the final hours of Jesus, I mean, you couldn't quite do it this way, but arrest at midnight, turning over to the Romans at 6, and so arrest to the, to the chief priests at midnight, turning over at 6 a.m. to the Romans, on the cross at noon, in the grave at 6 p.m. That, that would kind of give you a, so about every six hours is a major transition. So I just want to, I want to, there's so much I want to do with these texts. I'm going to try to be simpler than more complex. So here's, here's, here goes it simple. Jesus suffered because of his spiritual position. Jesus suffered because of his spiritual position. I want to take you back to those moments where he's at Caiaphas' house. Right, so it's like, think, palatial, big, huge, Mediterranean-style house. He's there in front of Caiaphas. They've tried to bring false witnesses against him. There, there's, there's nothing super substantial to hold on to. And finally, Caiaphas seems like in frustration says, are you the Christ? Tell us. And what does Jesus answer? You said so. And then he quotes two Old Testament texts, Psalm 110.1 and Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Both of these are messianic. When I say messianic, think God's servant texts, where the servant is not merely a servant as God's servant. He's the king over all of God's people. So Psalm 110.1 says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You see, Jesus says that in chapter 26. Um, if you look down at verse 64, that son of man seated at the right hand of power is a reference to that Psalm 110 text. Daniel 7 says, I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the son of man. Okay, the son of man is something Jesus picks up there, that the son of man is coming in power on the clouds. And so Jesus is blending these two prophetic passages that speak to his messianic character, right? Like, He's, he's not merely just saying, hey, here's some two Old Testament texts that, that you might not know about. He knows exactly what he's suggesting to Caiaphas. And what is Caiaphas' response? Because we miss it probably. Caiaphas doesn't. What does Caiaphas do? I mean, probably a little bit mock outrage, right? Like Caiaphas thinking, we got him. <laughs> right? Like Caiaphas is thinking, we nailed this guy. But he tears his clothes and he says what? This is blasphemy. Well, why is it blasphemy? Because Jesus, in this claim, in quoting these two Old Testament texts, has claimed 
the rightful throne of David as God's anointed servant and leader over Israel, and he is claimed to be divine. Caiaphas has no room for that. He's envious of Jesus. He wants Jesus dead. He does not want Jesus on the throne. Jesus is claiming to be Messiah, the Son of God, and Caiaphas and the chief priests and the leaders see Jesus as a threat to their own glory and their own freedom. They are right on. I just want you to stop and consider why they're angry at Jesus and recognize Jesus is calling them to make a decision. When he says, this is who I am, there's two general responses you can have. Yes or no. Right? Like, okay, that's who you are, or no, I don't agree with you. We know the leaders are not acting righteously, that they're doing this out of envy, but Jesus essentially is saying, I'm the Messiah, the Son of God. You can either submit to me and confess, as, confess me as king, or you can kill me as a blasphemer. And they go with a second. Now, don't be deceived. That option is still on the table for you today. This is who Jesus still is. He is either divine Messiah or fraud. And if he is the divine Messiah, then he is not in competition for your soul. He owns it already. The question is whether you submit to it. Right? So, so the, the choice that Caiaphas had in which he sinfully chooses to reject Jesus is still the choice on the table for every single human who's ever lived and been aware of who Jesus claims to be. You will either accept him as Messiah. You will either acknowledge, acknowledge that he is king and grant to him authority over you, or you will not. And can we just confess that perhaps we think we can find middle ground. And there is no such thing. I mean, Jesus is a more jealous king than any girlfriend or any boyfriend you've ever met. And I'm pretty confident that if you tried to have four girlfriends or boyfriends at the same time, assuming you were single, that the other side of that relationship is going to say, this ain't happening. It's either me and me alone or it's the highway, buddy. Right? Because, because there's an exclusivity in those types of romantic relationships. But Jesus Christ claims that same position of absolute authority and brokers no other posers or interposers in his authority over us. Just to be clear, He's also good. But he's not an easy king. He doesn't grant us approval for sin. And he doesn't always call us to the easy path, but he always calls us to the good path. So what is Caiaphas' response to Jesus' claim of absolute spiritual authority over Israel and all the men in the room? When you look down, verse 65, Caiaphas tears his robe, which incidentally is also a violation of the law code. He uttered blasphemy, 
he says about Jesus. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment, Sanhedrin? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face, and they struck him, and some slapped him, saying, and notice how they mock him. Prophesy to us, you Christ, you Messiah of God. Who is it that struck you? Their mockery and their insult and the suffering that they, they heap onto Jesus is in light of his claim. So, so court of law type of, of work is happening here. They're trying to get false witnesses. They've got none. They finally get Jesus, they would think, to step into a trap, and he acknowledges that he claims to be the Christ. Right? He claims to be the son of the living God, and they say, we got him. He's guilty of capital crimes. Think about what this court has just prosecuted and found him guilty of claiming. They never think to litigate whether or not he is. But they convict him of claiming to be the Son of God, the Messiah. They begin to beat him and mock him and ask him to prophesy. It's also interesting to note that in this trial, he is prophesied that he is going to be killed and three days later raised from the dead. The very thing they're mocking him about is his spiritual capacity to prove his messiahship. He's not going to play their game and stoop to their level. And yet in grace, he's already previously prophesied that he'll be killed and raised from the dead three days. In other words, he's already given them proof that he is a prophet of Israel, a messenger of God, the Messiah, the Son. Okay, so Jesus suffers at the hands of spiritual leaders because of his exalted spiritual position, his rightful spiritual position. I want you to come down and look at this, the, the political suffering next. In verses 1 and 2, we already looked at this. They, they, the Sanhedrin hands him over to Pilate, Pilate being the political leader of the day. Now, now Jesus has essentially three trials with, with the political leaders. He has Pilate, Herod, Pilate again. And all of that happens, again, in just those, those handful of hours from dawn to about noon. At one point, although we don't have record of this, John 19 records that he was beaten so that Pilate could release him. So it's kind of like, hey, I know you don't like the guy, so I'm going to rough him up a little bit. That's enough, right, boys? And they're like, no, we want him dead. So Jesus actually suffers multiple beatings. Religious leaders beat him. Pilate beats him. It's still not enough. Come to verse 11. Now, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, again, what? That's what you say. It's an affirmative answer, but it's not super strong. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. By the way, this is the, about the third time this morning that we've run across a fulfilled prophecy. Isaiah 53, he opened not his mouth. It was like a lamb led to the slaughter. He doesn't give an answer to his accusers. Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer not even a single, to not even a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast of the governor, it was accustomed to release for the crowd one prisoner whom they wanted, and they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they gathered, when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas 
or Jesus, who is called the Christ. For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. By the way, it's not a capital crime to be a robber. So, so although here Matthew records he's just a robber, Mark records that, that insurrection was part of the, the charges against the criminals, maybe Barabbas being um, an insurrectionist too is part of the issue, because that would be a capital crime. Right, so it's not just like, oh man, he stole a couple of fruit off the fruit stand there in the market and he's gone. It's that Barabbas is a hardened criminal. Verse 19, he was sitting on the judgment seat. His wife sent to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man. I've suffered much because of him today in a dream. That's not significant to us. Dreams are a huge thing in the Roman Empire. Like they were very mystical people. So having nothing to do with that righteous man is, is what his wife says. Verse 20, chief priests and elders persuaded uh, the crowd to ask for Barabbas to destroy Jesus. The governor said to them again, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. So Pilate washes his hands. The crowd says, let his blood be upon us and our children. <laughs> that is one of those like lines in scripture. If it doesn't just grab your soul. They know they're doing wrong, they're riled, and they're willing to say and do evil things. And that does happen to us sometimes, doesn't it? Have you ever been angry and said something you regret? Have you ever been riled up and done something you wish you hadn't? Well, as humans, we haven't changed. And I think in part of this, we should recognize that the people of Israel echo all people everywhere who reject the Son. So he releases them to Barabbas. Look down at verse 28 with me now. Uh, go back to verse 27. The soldiers, the governor, took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion. That's 600 men. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. Kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him. They took a reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped off the robe and put on his own clothes and led him away to crucify him. The mockery here is about his kingship. Did you notice that? So, so how Matthew has framed it, in chapter 26, we have this spiritual trial. And when they mock him and, and they convict him in court, it's because of his spiritual claims and his spiritual position. He's the Messiah of Israel. He's the servant of God. He's the son of God. And all of those claims they hate because it dispossesses them of their glory over Israel. And now we go to the political field, and, and as we, we, we turn our attention there, he's in front of Pilate. And Pilate, rather than a noble creature he might seem in the text, is really just a wimp. I mean, at the least, you can see that this man who's a leader is letting an innocent man get murdered because he's just a coward. But then you look at the prosecution and the abuse. How is he killed? How is he beaten? Hail, King of the Jews. They get this thorny crown. They put a reed in his hand as a false scepter. They put a robe on him, and you have 600 men in this horrific incident of abuse and beating. They whip him. You know, the, the, you know, like Paul saying, I was beaten 40 times, save one, like 39. That was not, when there's capital punishment on the line, there was no limit. There are accounts where men died just from the beating alone. 
you, you probably know the cat of nine tails as this kind of common euphemism for this whip, but it's basically you get a whip with a whole bunch of, of leather rope on it, and on the ends of those rope are tied pieces of glass and bone. And they would whip until his body was shredded. All the while, they're mocking him as a broken down, countryless king, false prince. Hail, king of the Jews. Scripture records that Pilate writes in three different languages, Latin, the Roman language, Greek, the trade language, Aramaic, the language of Israel, king of the Jews. The leaders protest. They're like, no, he is not our king. Say, he said he is king of the Jews. Pilate's like, no. You know what Pilate's point is? He didn't like the Jews. He's like, this is your king and I'm going to kill him. Pilate's making a political statement. He's, he's not happy. He got cornered by their politics and their crowd and the possible uprising. And so he writes, King of the Jews. So now we have Jesus convicted in the spiritual court of claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of God. We have him in the political court, accused and found guilty of being Israel's king. And both of his accusations that he's been found guilty of in a court of law are true. And for this, he will die. I think it is interesting that Isaiah records him as a lamb. Isaiah 5. Pastor Mike read this last week. It's one of the few places in Scripture, maybe the only place in Scripture, where you have the phrase lion and lamb used in unison in the text. You have heaven scouring its citizenry to find someone who's worthy. Right? Someone who's worthy. And Revelation 5 says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, king of Israel, has been found, right? The king from David has been found. And he has conquered so that he can open up these scrolls. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as one slain. When Jesus does not respond and he's silent, the Bible says he's like a lamb. Unlike a lamb who doesn't know what's happening, does not have the intellect to reason, does not know it should be terrified it's about to die, our Savior knew it all. Unless we think in some inhuman way he didn't experience fear, the Bible opens up the window to his private prayer in the garden where he is a broken down, weeping, hurting man. Right? Let this cup pass from me, he pleads, in the garden. He's not indifferent to the pain and the suffering that he's about to go through. So the scripture then moves us to the cross. I want you to look at verses 32 and following. I'm going to try to, try to do this relatively quickly. But you're going to see that he suffers from multiple different angles. Or maybe I could say multiple different prosecutors. Verse 31. Excuse me, let me get back to the correct chapter. I'm going to start down in verse 27. The soldiers and the governor took Jesus. 
And they gathered the battalion, and they stripped him, and they beat him. So we see his suffering at the hands of whom? The Roman Gentile soldiers. Come down to verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. And then when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. By the way, that fills another prophecy. And when they tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments among them, casting lots. That's a prophecy of Psalm 22. When they sat down, they kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which reads, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then the two robbers who were crucified with him, one on the right hand and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from that cross. People walking by mock him. People who don't even know him hardly at all. They personally have no relationship with him. They're not part of the court system. They're passers-by. Scripture records and history records that, generally speaking, Romans crucified people naked. Now, there would be a level of suffering for you if you just showed up in naked. That's why you've had nightmares since you were like three of going to school without clothes on. Can you imagine a grown man in the presence of your mom, family, crowds, and passerbyers? Breathing and dying and being mocked at by people you don't even know. They pass by and they've picked up enough from the culture, from the surrounding sermons that he's preached to mock him with a little bit of edge. You said you're something, show us. And they keep walking. Hey, kids, there's another poser. Stupid man, stuff the Romans is what you get, son. Keep your head low. For hours. This random walker by, like passerby is wagging their heads, criticizing him. Verse 41. So also the chief priests and the scribes. The elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God. So now they're, they're proving their court case that they've already brought him conviction for, right? Like, hey, if he's truly the Son of God, let God save him. If God loves him, God will rescue him. So, so Roman soldiers, passers-by, now who is it? Chief priests, scribes, all the spiritual elite. It gets worse. The robbers. Right? Like, of all the people who you would think be like, yeah, bro, it's a tough one. We're in this with you. No, not even them. Two guys dying next to him, still he is getting mocked. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. They're mocking him. We know from the other gospel accounts, one of them turns in faith to Jesus. If you look down in verse 55, it says there were many women looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus. It seems like the only friends he had were ones that weren't even close enough to offer comfort. I don't want to simply just tug on your heartstrings, but Matthew has cataloged the mockery on purpose. 
He's taken us to the spiritual court where Jesus is condemned, prosecuted, and persecuted because he is who he says he is, the King of Israel, the Messiah, the Son of God. We move to the political court, and Pilate and Herod and the people prosecute him as a civil rebel who claims to be king because he is the king. And we look, and everyone in our field of view except a few women that we can't even make out because they're so far away from Jesus. Mock him. And we still haven't gotten to the hard part yet. I don't think this is without mistake in Matthew's editorial work that we now come to the Father. Look down with me in verse 46. About the ninth hour, 6 p.m., Jesus cried. And by the way, those are rough. The Jews didn't have clocks like we do. But the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. It's Aramaic. It means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, this man is calling for Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. Others said, wait, let us to see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. When we go through the soldiers, the passers-by, the chief priests, the leaders, the spiritual elite, you go through even the, the robbers next to him, all of them turn on Jesus. We know that this one hurt the most. When his father turned his back on his son, so to speak. I think what's really happening here is Jesus Christ is offering himself as a sacrifice that absorbs God's wrath. Right? 1 John 2, 2 says that he is the propitiation for our sins. I know that's like a 10-cent word you don't really use very often. It means that he is the sacrifice that absorbs God's wrath. So in this moment when Jesus is crying, why have you forsaken me? He's not asking the question why. He's just expressing absolute agony over the reality. God is dumping on him the suffering and the payment and the anger of all that our sins deserve. And Jesus Christ's shoulders are bearing down under the weight of the Father's wrath. As he's experiencing all of the mockery, all of the hatred, all of the rejection of all of the world around him. And so our Savior dies. No one takes his life from him, but he gives it up for us all. This is what Jesus experienced. And I think I can safely say that not all the scrolls in all of the world could contain what could be written about our Savior's death, his life, and his work for us. And Matthew, in just a few short, short chapters, covers broad details of the suffering and death of Jesus. And Jesus knew it was coming. In Matthew 17, he says, I will suffer at their hands. In Matthew 20, he says, I'm going to suffer, be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes in order to suffer, to be flogged, and crucified and raised the third day. 
In Luke 17, he says, I need to suffer many things and to be rejected by this generation. Jesus knew he was going to suffer. And he suffered. So why did Jesus suffer? I do think part of the reason Jesus suffered, at the least, is so that we could see it. You know, if Jesus Christ were to have suffered in the spiritual realm, if the world were not to have gone dark, I suppose, theoretically, that he could have suffered enough to die for all the sins of all of the believers of all of the ages. But I think the Lord, in his plan, and that is the Father's plan, has determined that Jesus Christ would suffer rejection and prosecution and persecution by us. It wasn't merely just Adam in the garden who rejected God. It's who we are. Jesus Christ threatened the leaders and the chief priests and their glory because Jesus demands glory. And there was a tug of war in which they killed Jesus because they wanted his glory. Rome killed Jesus because they didn't want any other king but Caesar. This is who our Lord is. He demands to be king, to get glory, to be honored. And so we kill him. So what for us? What does this mean for us? Can I just call you to two considerations? Jesus suffered so that you could be promised an end to your suffering. I won't ask you to raise your hand if you're suffering or you've suffered. I won't ask if this last year has been hard for you. If you're a human living in a sin-cursed world, it probably has. Right? Like, if you're married to a sinner, which means if you're married, you've suffered. If you have children, they bring blessing and suffering. And we should love our family. There are avenues through which God dumps so much sweetness and goodness in our life. But there's also suffering in those things. If you've lost a spouse, you're suffering. If you're single, that singleness may cause some element of suffering. Our world is filled with suffering. That's because of sin. And so when God describes for us the glories of heaven, he says he wipes away every tear. I don't think that means he erases tear ducts. The point is a euphemism. He takes away suffering. But this is the substitution of Jesus, that by bearing suffering caused by sin, he would remove from us the future prospect of suffering on the other side of glory. So when we enter into our resurrected, glorified bodies and walk into the gates of paradise, there will never be another moment of suffering because of sin. Jesus suffered so you could be promised a life of never suffering again. It doesn't mean that there won't be challenges and opportunities and work in heaven. So those of you who think work is a result of sin need to read your Bibles a little bit better. Work is a good thing, but our work is filled with the curse of sin. I mean, if I were just to use the gardening analogy, you weed the garden and you turn around and there's more weeds. You, you water and cultivate, and your plants still struggle with diseases and bugs and 
all sorts of things. And so you constantly have to work against the curse, against sin. Jesus has suffered so that when he says that he offers salvation from sin, he is not merely offering salvation from sinfulness, but its consequences of suffering and pain. And that's a sweetness. But I would suggest to you there's more than that. Jesus suffered the wrath of the Father so that he could bring us into the Father's presence with peace. And so 1 Peter 3 says this, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might, listen carefully, bring us to God. Now, the point is this, like the prodigal son story, we all, with rebel hearts and rebel sin, have attacked and assaulted our heavenly Father. And because of Jesus' suffering and payment for all the sins against our Father, he can grab us, metaphorically speaking, and take us back into the Father's presence, and there is no wrath or condemnation because Jesus paid it all. Maybe I could say it this way. Jesus suffered the separation and abandonment by the Father so that you could be welcomed and received by him. Matthew doesn't open up the hallways of Jesus' suffering so that like some drive-by gawker, we can just see the amazing misery of mankind. He opens up the suffering of Jesus so that we might see how much he suffered how much we deserve to suffer because of our sin, and we run to the Father. So how much should you be willing to suffer for others? How much should you be willing to walk through in this life for the sake and the glory of God? The New Testament will tell us, be like Jesus. Be like Jesus. The Bible will tell us we do this because of the hope of heaven. And all of this is purchased through the suffering of Jesus Christ. In a few moments, we're going to celebrate the table of the Lord. So let me just express to you that this table is clearly only for those who are believers and live like it. We don't know all of you very well. We know some of you very well, and we would love to know all of you better. But if you are a faithful participant in a biblical church like ours, and you're accountable to them for your claim of salvation, then you can join us in the table of the Lord. But this is, this is what Jesus did the night he was betrayed with his disciples. He, he takes a cup, and he passes it around, and he says, this is my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then he takes, and he breaks this unleavened bread and he passes it around and he says, this is my body which is broken for you. So we can walk through the suffering of Jesus because of his spiritual claims of being the exalted son of God and the Messiah of Israel. We can see his suffering before Pilate, his prosecution and his ultimate death because of his political claims to be the king of Israel. But Jesus says this, I did it for you.
Because that third courtroom we never got to was the Father's. In which Jesus pushes you out of the Father's wrath and steps into it for you. So that his broken body, his poured out blood, is for you who believe. Do you believe? Do you trust in Jesus to be your righteousness, to be your forgiveness, to be your king? Do you trust in Jesus? Do you love him? That's the call of every Christian. I'm going to close in prayer, and as I do, I would like you to prepare your hearts to take the table of the Lord with us. I'm only going to read a short, short section of Scripture from 1 Peter that uses this concept of suffering like Jesus to remind us how we suffer well. And then while the piano player plays, if you would come up and grab the elements so that we can celebrate the table together. Father, thank you so much for architecting the plan of salvation that includes the horrific death of Jesus Christ. We thank you that in this plan, you have removed from us any responsibility to work hard to be saved because we could never work hard enough. We thank you that you have offered us salvation without us being good because we could never be good enough without you first saving us. Father, we thank you that you have saved us not because we were someone lovable, but despite our sin, you have saved us. Because you loved us while we were still in our sins. Father, we thank you that your plan of redemption included the full purchase price of all of our sins that were redeemed from every bit of it for eternity. Because if there was one little taint of sin left in us, we would not be welcomed into your heaven. Father, we thank you that the brutal cost of salvation was something that you were willing to send your son to pay. And Jesus, precious Savior, we thank you for dying for us. We thank you for suffering quietly like a lamb, innocent, undeserving of the ridicule, undeserving of the pain and the suffering, undeserving of the evil and the hatred against you and yet quietly receiving it as our substitutionary lamb. Savior, thank you. Father, I ask that through the work and the ministry of the Spirit, you would secure your precious people to Christ always. For those that do not yet trust in Jesus as their lamb and Lord, I ask that today in just reading through Matthew together, that the Spirit would be granted the tools necessary to awaken to spiritual life those who don't know Jesus, that they might believe in his death and resurrection for their sakes, that they might turn from their sin and be saved. Father, through the Spirit, do your work. Call people to salvation. Bring them into the family of God that they might be saved forever. Amen.